Yo. Mr. Ben, how are you? Doing well. I'm here today to talk to you about enterprise sales. My favorite topic. Your favorite, every... Every developer's favorite topic, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, so the audience for this information is going to be kind of narrow, but probably will intersect well with our audience. Mm -hmm. Because it's the advice that I wish I had when I first started this. It's the lessons I've learned over time doing enterprise sales for Tuple. And... Like for the context, I didn't have any sales experience before I had to start doing this. And then we just kept having companies come to us who wanted to give us a lot of money. And I had to sort of navigate this thing and figure out like, what is a PO versus an invoice? And like, how does this, pro like, when do I actually get money? And how do, how do we get paid and all this? And I think I've learned some interesting things. And I'm in the process. Uh, we just hired a head of sales who's starting pretty soon. And I had previously handed off to Steven, our uh, COO. So I'm sort of like stepping back from this. So while this stuff is still fresh-ish, I want to yeah. kind of just like get my, my thoughts down and hope that sort of these notes are useful for future people. And it's probably most likely to be useful for you if you're kind of like me, where you're a technical person, you'd kind of rather be doing other stuff, like maybe writing code or like working on the product. But there's these annoying people who like want to buy your product, but they want to do it in this weird, slow way that involves PDFs and DocuSigns and stuff. Um, and you're not willing to just like say no to them. Yeah. So I guess what I would like to know just to sort of set the stage is yeah. like, what was your attitude about enterprise sales going into starting Tuple? And was there any sort of like moment that made you just think this is something that's going to be important for us? Uh, so initially my attitude was like pretty negative towards these things. So when we, we got started, we initially like would just say no to people that couldn't just pay with a credit card. Yeah. Like they would tell me like, I need an invoice or like I have to pay via PO. And I would just say like, we're not, we're not ready for you. And so in the early days, I mostly just like declined. I wasn't like playing hard to get. We were busy. Our time was limited. There were companies that just had credit cards and could just pay. And that was the happy path for us. And so I just like authentically said like, this isn't like the priority right now. Mm-hmm. And then, like, the names of the companies that wanted this treatment were, like, too appealing. Okay. So that was yeah. the thing that kind of made you think, ah, you know what, I want to be able to say that these people use Tuple. And I think I'm willing to do things I didn't think I was willing to do to kind of get that. 100%. Like, yeah, like, exactly. Sexy Silicon Valley companies that everyone's heard of don't buy software with a credit card usually. Uh, and so it was like, yeah, I really, I, I want these people as customers. It's just, it's too cool. And, and the, well, the dollar amounts, like, well, we think we have, you know, 300 engineers as a start. And then if we like it, we'll roll out it to everyone. And it's like, oh, wow, that adds up really fast. Mm -hmm. So eventually I sort of caved and said, let's do this. Okay. So what was it like the first time, I guess? What was your <laughs> first time? Like, what was my I didn't first even mean to ask the question this way, but this <laughs> is even better than I could have expected. So. Oh, man. <laughs> there's a lot of fumbling. So let me maybe start with a couple of caveats just to make sure people understand kind of where this advice is coming from before you like start, make sure it applies to your situation. Okay. So like, first of all, this is just like, this is just an N of one. So this is just me doing it. So I don't have, I haven't like done sales for a lot of different companies or different markets. So it could be that there's, there's unique things about Tuple that make it not apply to you. Mm -hmm. It's also Tuple is used by and like sold to developers and it's purchased by the leadership. And engineering has a lot of clout within an organization. So for us, like we have a bottom-up process generally. Generally, a few engineers start using Tuple, and then it spreads around the company. And then at some point, someone in like procurement or like an, some engineering leader says like, "Oh, let's let's get this for the whole team," or like let's get a more formal agreement in place. And then the sales process starts. So that's pretty particular. Like I'm not doing any outbound. That's what I was going to say. Like, I think a lot of people's aversion to enterprise stuff is like, no, I don't want to be like cold emailing people yeah. trying to like sort of like convince them to buy our stuff and yes. doing whatever you're, this is like inbound enterprise sales. It's like these enterprises want to buy. They're going to force you through their process of BS paperwork and all sorts mm -hmm. of stuff whatever, but it's, it's not quite the same as like, you have to go out and figure out how can I convince these people to buy? Like they totally. want to buy, but if you want to let them buy, you have to play by their rules basically. Yeah. If your problem is that people don't know they want your software or like they think they don't want it like that, I can't help you with that. Again, this is kind of like for the reluctant founder where it's like people do want it and they're bothering me about this particular way of buying and I need to like solve this efficiently. So 
I would almost go so far as to like make this a piece of advice, which is like if you can build your product in such a way that it grows from the bottom up and like bottom meaning like sort of bottom of the org chart or like it's it's like the users are going to start using it. They can hopefully get going easily for maybe for free or for cheap. And then if it works and as it spreads throughout the organization, then you later trigger this more complicated, more slow process. That to me seems like easy mode. I haven't tried to go it from the other direction, but for us at least that has been really useful because we're kind of at the end of the day, more or less just taking orders of people that already know they want it. And like, it's not even the person, it's like the procurement person is like, engineering says they want this, I have to buy it. Like, mm-hmm. help me buy this with yeah. you. Mm-hmm. So just keep in mind that that's our context and all my advice is sort of because of that. Okay, so I guess the next thing would be like, what happens here where there's even like lessons to be learned? You know, like naively, you just think, okay, these people kind of tell you, okay, well, we want to buy this, tell us how much it's going to cost. And we pay by, you know, horseback courier and the money <laughs> will be delivered you know uh within 90 days or something like that and, and then you get the money and move on but it sounds like there's a lot more lessons learned here and i'm curious to know like where those start totally yeah so first lesson if you can do a bottom-up sales process that's great because i think that makes us all easier if you have to start from selling people on it that's like a whole different business and if you aren't excited to do that to do that or willing to do that, you're going in for some pain, I believe. So the first bit of advice I have is, I think most of this is going to be very tactical. So these are sort of like lessons I've jotted down as I feel like I've gotten better at this thing. So the, the first thing is a nice trick. So, so yes, I, I am kind of taking orders, but actually there is still negotiation that happens. Like the procurement person is there to kind of like rake you over the coals and try to get a lot of concessions out of you, get the best agree. Like legal wants to get the best agreement they can. They want it for as cheap as possible. They want discounts. They want free pilots. They want changes to the product, all these things. Um, so f- first little bit of sales advice. If you get a question from your prospect, a lot of the time it works really well to just ask them to answer their own question. So like... I had someone be like, well, like, why wouldn't we just use Zoom for this? Okay. And I would say, oh, yeah, that's a great question. Why, why don't you just use Zoom for this? And they're like, well, the engineers have asked for this because they say they, they prefer it to pairing over Zoom. And I'd be like, okay, yeah, well, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> so I, th- I think that works a surprising amount of the time is to just literally flip it back on them. It's like they sort of think they've got you and then you're like, well, but like, does that make sense? They're like, oh yeah, I no, not really. That's sort of an annoying position to be in in general. Like you have these people who want to buy from you. They're the ones initiating the whole process, but they're, they come into your inbox asking you why they should buy it from you. I have historically always like borderline ignored those messages. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. So I like this move. I still, I got this from Matt Wensing. I think it works great. And it's, it's a nice thing to have in your pocket. It's just always be like, oh, that, yeah, that's a good question. Why, why not? Why doesn't that work? Why shouldn't we do this? And a lot of times they just, they just have the answer already. Yeah. Nice. Uh, yeah. And then, so another bit of advice is say no to a lot of things and then follow up with, is that a deal breaker? Like there's going to be this back and forth over a bunch of little items. And like here, like, here, this is a list of things that I have said no to and still gotten a deal done. Okay. Discounts. Yeah. Active user pricing. Okay. Filling out a security audit. Yeah. Doing background checks for our employees. Giving them a free pilot. Changing the product before they buy it. Doing a demo. Scheduling a call. Doing any sort of like call at all. And selling through a reseller. Nice. Again, they're all like no's that still worked that turned out to not be deal breakers. So like, it's scary to say no, because you're like, okay, I do actually want this deal to happen. I do want Block to be a customer. I do want Stripe to be a customer. But they're asking me for this thing. I don't want to give it. But the thing to know is like, this is totally a negotiation. So just to be clear, when you say they're asking, are they asking or are they saying, we need this? You know, like what makes it scary to say no? You know what I mean? People will... I guess lie is kind of the word. (laughs) (laughs) They will at least heavily imply that certain things are not negotiable. Mm -hmm. And in reality, that is often untrue. 
So you will get this email that feels very much like we start all of our software engagements with a free pilot. Um, let's go ahead and plan for a six-month free pilot. I'm going to need 1,000 seats to get started. At the end of that, we will talk to you about whether or not this works. It is often sort of heavily implied, like, this is the only way. This is the way we always do it, that kind of thing. Or, like, or just straight up say, like, we have to do this. And I just have seen enough instances of the thing that, like, had to be done not actually being a true deal breaker. Yeah. That it's, like, it's very reasonable to push back on things that you don't want to do. And that, like, is this a deal breaker question? I do actually think it's kind of a nice dodge around this because... I would just sort of be like, ah, we don't usually do that. That's, that would be really tough for us. We don't really have the bandwidth for this, or like we that's not really how we like to work. Is that a deal breaker? And I find that is that a deal breaker question actually seems to get more honesty from people. Yeah. And people answer it more mm-hmm. straightforwardly. They're like, well, we do actually have this form we can fill out that makes a special request for a non-pilot engagement, blah, blah, blah. And there's often like a like a, a way around yeah. a thing that turns out yeah. not actually a deal breaker. Yeah, that's an interesting point to make because I think I'm learning something here because I think when we get these sorts of like inbound messages from people saying, we need this, we need this, whatever, we'd like to buy this, but we need this, that, and the other, I always just like turn it down completely. I just say, hey, sorry, we're a small company. We don't uh, do purchasing um, this way, if you can't buy it by just putting in your credit card on the website, then unfortunately we have no way to sell it to you. The end, you mm. know, which mm-hmm. what I'm taking away from this kind of conversation is like, I could do nothing differently other than say, is that a deal breaker for you? And probably increase the odds of like them still buying, you know what I mean? Cause mm-hmm. I feel like I'm basically saying, no, I'm not going to let you buy. But if I say, this is the only way you can buy. I'd be happy to sell it to you if you can still buy it that way. Do you think you could do that? Uh-huh. I don't know. I think we could get something out of that. Yeah, that seems right to me. Like you're holding your ground, but you're also showing like, I also want this deal to get done. Yeah. And so mm-hmm. like, I need to know the real contours of the deal breakers for you. And I think that shows a more willingness at like, okay. Yes. All right. I've asked for three things. Adam has pushed back. But he seems like he's going to work with me. What's the one I really need? And then you can sort of decide, am I willing to compromise and do that one thing mm-hmm. that they want you to do? Yeah. That's good. Are you getting big, like, inbound requests for things? Like, are people offering you, like, 10 grand at least to, like, do things that, and, you, and you say no? I can't say we've ever gotten an email that had a price in the email. Just, yeah. just from big organizations and government bodies and stuff like that that just like make it clear that they don't buy things by putting credit cards into forms on the internet you know and you just say strictly no to them yeah i don't know i my opinion hasn't really changed on that it's like our business works without selling to those people so until it doesn't then i but you know if there's ways that we could get those customers with no meaningful hassle or or something you know then that is interesting. Yeah, you might want to, I mean, not you, but you might want to have someone on your team <laughs> do a yeah. couple of these. Yeah. And just kind of see what it takes to get it done and like have them push back in the way, like have them listen to this mm-hmm. <laughs> and push back in ways that make sense. But also just kind of find out like, because the beautiful thing about enterprise sales is, I'm going to cover in the next section, which is pricing. Yeah. Is like you can always name a number that makes the deal worth it for you. Yeah, sure. And so rather than just saying no to all, you can say yes, if, and yeah. It ter- like, yeah, sure, we can do invoice, like PO um, purchasing for orders over X. Yeah. Like, here's our minimum. Yeah. So I did have a question, but maybe we'll get into it there, which is basically like, what are the things that you've said yes to? And what did it cost the customer to get you to say yes, you know? Yeah, totally. Yeah. If I were you, I might, I might investigate this just a little bit, like... I don't think you personally should do any of this, but it could be that there's like a happy medium here. And if you just said, yeah, anything over 10 grand, we're willing to do this. It's weird with our product because like the most a company can pay us, I think right now it's like $7.99 is the price of a team license. Yeah. You know what I mean? You, you, you would need an enterprise plan basically. And that's what we did when we started this thing. So like once I was like, okay, um, we're gonna, we actually do want to sell the enterprises. I'm going to invent another tier for them. Mm-hmm. to make this annoying sales process worth it on our end. And the crazy thing is that like just everyone just agrees that this is fine. 
Yeah. Like, like the engineer in me is like, this is stupid. And, and is what you're saying, like the only thing that maybe they're getting out of it is like willingness to go through their process. It's not like they're necessarily getting extra features or sometimes like <laughs> maybe like an SLA or something is a, is a feature or something because that's one of the things that they need you to agree to. But it's not like yes. a better product in any way. Yeah, this, yes, this totally works. Yes, you can just say like, if you need custom agreements, if you need legal review, if you need an SLA, if you need to pay via PO, the price is this. Mm -hmm. And that just works. Like we have more features now in our enterprise tier, but it's still not that different than the basic product. It's kind of a little bit like the, you need annoying things, we're going to charge you more for annoying things. And everyone is just pretty cool with that. Like they yeah. would rather have, like it's better to have good features in the enterprise plan. This is the thing I'm like working on from like a product design perspective. Like I'm looking for interesting features to add to our enterprise plan that our bigger customers want. Yep. And there are some of those because it's, it, it doesn't feel great to just be like, oh yeah, if you want to do this, if you want us to fill out a security audit and um, do deal with red lines on our terms of service, it costs twice as much or three times as much or 10 times as much. So it doesn't feel as good. You'd rather have people pulled into those those plans, but it actually you can just do that, and it, it I've closed deals like that. Interesting. Yeah. Okay, so next tactic, this pricing stuff. This is what I'm yep. curious to hear about. Yes. Okay. So I feel like my core rule for pricing is that it should make you uncomfortable psychologically. Like the price that you suggest to them. The price that you suggest. Yeah. Okay. So like I'm sort of picturing you're the the person this advice is for is kind of in my shoes, which is like. You have maybe a couple co-founders. The company is like three people or whatever, maybe five. And you're you're basically a person still. You're still like a you still think like a like a human, like an employee, maybe. Where or sure. like a like you're like, yeah, like I'm a developer. I make like 150 grand a year, and that's like a lot of money. Um, and so this software took me a few months to make, so it should probably cost X or something like that. My bit of advice is like a hundred thousand dollars a year is not a lot of money. I feel like that's like the first thing you kind of have to internalize. Like it is a lot of money to you and to me, but to a company whose problem you're solving, like it is not a lot of money. Mm -hmm. I think I really recommend you do when you are selling to a software company or like when you're selling to another company is to try to like understand their scale. And so like a company that has, let's say a hundred developers Fully loaded cost on those developers is probably north of, but let's just say it's 250k a year. That's 25 million dollars a year in payroll expense. Yeah. So your hundred thousand dollar tool a year is 0.4 percent of that. Mm -hmm. So are you making those developers 0.5 percent more effective? Great ROI. Yeah. So it's it's just one of these things where like it's hard to break away from like the shackles of. I think in terms of like my annual salary or what a normal, like what normal amounts of money are and just not realize that like the person you're talking to on the other end has a budget and like, it's not their money. Like it's just like a line in a spreadsheet that they had like agreed to nine months ago during the annual financial planning. Mm -hmm. And like, as long as that number is going to stay positive and like not go below where it's supposed to, like you're okay. And they're not spending their own money. And it doesn't feel like it doesn't feel the same to them as when you say my product is going to cost you $30,000 a year or whatever it is. Yeah. So when you're picking these numbers though, like how much of it is like, what's the most I can get these people to pay and how much of it is like, what's the minimum I'm willing to accept to basically balance out the sort of unease I feel about like letting them cross out this thing in our terms of service that like, yeah, like, I, I mean, that's a mix of questions in a way, because in, in some ways I just kind of feel like there's got to be things that are like, aren't worth any price. You know what I mean? Like, okay, well, we want to increase like the liability that you guys have legally if someone steals our source code to like whatever, you know, it's like, uh, I yeah. mean, okay, I could guess I can do like the risk, you know, analysis here and think, okay, it's probably never going to happen. So if you pay us a hundred grand a year, I guess that would be sweet. But if it ever did happen, even at hundred a year, like you guys are toast or whatever, you know? Yeah, yeah. I, I, like first rule of thumb is like make sure you're happy if the deal closes at the prices you're talking okay. about. Okay. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> yeah. if you say X and they say okay, and you're like, oh damn, like I actually don't want this. Well, yeah, clearly you messed up. So that's that's sort of a first guideline. It's fine to have your own deal breakers. You know, like if I think you can you can and should think about like what aren't we willing to compromise on? That seems fine. And then I would also just say like experiment. 
because mm-hmm. it's really hard to know what your product actually is worth. And that's going to actually be a good thing of like turning that question around again. They're like, oh, like what is like what would what would this cost us for this deal? And you could say, well, how much value do you think it would provide to your engineering team if they adopted this tool and liked it and were using it pretty regularly? Is it fair to say it might make them five percent more effective? Okay, and how many devs do you have? Okay, so like let's just like rough numbers. This is like one one option there. But I, I feel like the, the the broad pricing advice that is hard to go wrong is like experiment with your pricing. Yeah. Try different numbers. So particularly in the early days of Tuple, I was just just adding, I was just changing the price every time. Like I closed all of our initial customers before we even had a product. And I was just adding amounts. I was just adding an extra hundred bucks per user per year or yeah. something every time just to see like where do people start complaining and, and push back. So when you're suggesting a price to a specific customer, like at what point do you pitch a price? You know, how often are they coming to you with a price, I guess? And yeah. like, w- what does the back and forth look like before like a price is agreed on? Are you asking lots of questions before you suggest a price or is it our enterprise here costs this, you know? Yeah. We, so we, we have a price on our website and I, I think it's usually good to do this. Like we have like a starts at um, mm-hmm. annually. I think that's still up there. I don't know. We, this, this page changes around a, a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. So we have this on our thing, you know, starts at 30 K a year. Um, and that's just like, let's just make sure that you know if you're coming to us, like we're talking in this ballpark and we're not wasting time. And I think that's useful. Like having a starts at, uh, don't com- like, or you could even commit to a price. I think that's fine. For a while we've had like, this is our enterprise price. I think however you do it, it's worth establishing a ballpark and talking about it pretty fast. Okay. Um, I recommend, hmm, this actually, this is, this is interesting. This advice is, has, I'm not sure I still agree with this, but let me, let me riff on this. Unlimited is kind of an interesting word in these negotiations. I think okay. usually it's probably in your best interest to not agree to unlimited anything. What's an example of something that you might be naively say is unlimited? Yeah, yeah. You could like, for us, it's like unlimited users could use Tuple, for example. Okay. So we do actually have a few deals like this that have worked out pretty well. So I initially felt like pretty dogmatic about this. Like never have unlimited because you want expansion revenue. Like mm-hmm. you want to get paid more as people use your product. We have had a number of like very successful customer deals where we just said like, let's figure out a price that you feel good about and we feel good about. Like how many developers you have? Okay, let's just come up with something that feels good. And that way it's like you, you can budget for one number up front. That has honestly worked out pretty well. I don't hate this. this. And, and is that under sort of like the in this mindset of like and maybe this is something you're going to talk about but i'm guessing these deals have like contracts associated with them where it's like this is your price for three years and three years from now if like your engineering team is 10 times the size it was before then we're probably going to have a discussion type of thing yeah and that that's so that's the downside is like i think what you ideally want is like expansion revenue is like the is the best kind of revenue. Yeah, like you want to make more money as a business uses your product more, mm-hmm. and I think that's actually like a really important component of like an important like attribute to have in your pricing. Uh, generally, like that's where like a lot a huge amount of tuple like revenue growth comes from each month. And just to be like really clear here for anyone who's just yeah, like yeah. not familiar with this terminology, expansion revenue is when a customer that you already have pays you more this month than they did last month because of some usage in the product going up. Like for an email right. newsletter company, it might be like, oh, you have more subscribers than you did last month, so your monthly price has gone up with tuple it's oh you've hired three more engineers and they all have tuple accounts and you have to pay per seat so maybe last year you were paying for 70 people and this year you're paying for 130 people you didn't have to find any new customers but now you're making more money than you were before that's right exactly it's a wonderful thing to have if you can succeed when your customers are succeeding this is great so like for Tuple effectively makes more money every time any of our customers hires a new developer because they add them to the tool and we charge by user. And so like as they grow and are successful, we gain from that as well, which is awesome. And so I'm usually loath to disconnect that. Like I want that expansion revenue, but we have had a couple deals where it made it easier to just have like one number. Side note here, you guys should just obvious side business in my mind for tuple is some sort of like tuple job board you know what i mean how mm. how can you how can you help your customers find and hire more developers it is kind of funny yeah like how directly that would <laughs> impact our revenues like yes i like that yeah 
So anyway, so I guess my general advice is probably lean away from unlimited. But in this case, I've had some good success with it in deals where like we're going to like renegotiate it in a year, for example. It can kind of short circuit the, all the like, well, exactly how many people are going to use this? We don't know. Therefore, let's go do unlimited. Um, but generally, a thing that has worked for us um, alongside that is quarterly true ups. Okay. So I say like, let's start with 100 users. Why don't you, why don't you buy 100 users? And then once a quarter, if you go over that, I'm just going to charge you a prorated amount for the additional people you've added. And that way, you can probably roughly budget that it's going to be about 100 plus some. And then every quarter, I'm going to send you an invoice for the whatever's new. Oh, you went to 120 users. Here's an invoice for part of the year for uh, 20 users. And Stripe makes this pretty easy. They have like a, a thing where you can send like pending invoice items or something. Uh, so this just happens automatically for our nice. customers. Yeah, that's been a nice way to handle that. Um, more pricing advice. Charge more for SAML, single sign-on. Yeah. We don't do this as sort of like a philosophical, like, I don't love this from like a, we are sort of forcing you to have worse security posture unless you pay us more money. Yeah. We don't do this. So we, we, we got away from this. But in the early days in particular, when you're just trying to get deals done and you want to like push people into an enterprise tier so you can like make a bunch of money from a customer, this is like a very standard, very expected, very common practice. And it's just like a really easy way to segment out your richer, more yeah. security sensitive customers who are expecting this whole sales process thing. Um, and it's just an easy way to like make more money from it. Yeah, it seems like just a good, highly, something that's like highly correlated with a company being in a big budget enterprise company. You know, if they need Absolutely. that, then odds yes. are like, Odds are they're getting way too good of a deal from you <laughs> by paying the same price that everybody else is, is paying. Yes. Yeah. And it's kind of like, it's when a company gets departments that have veto authority that they're signaling to you they have a lot of money. Mm -hmm. Like when the security department can veto signing up for your tool because you don't have SSO and therefore they have to buy the SSO plan, they are saying like we are a sophisticated enterprise that has yeah. a lot of money and we are expecting to be discriminated against with price. Mm-hmm. Yep, makes sense. Same deal with legal. Like if a five-person company signs up for a tuple, they never push back on legal. Like, oh, we need a custom terms of service. But when like a 500-person company signs up, often they do have a legal department and the legal department has to review any terms of service you sign and they have strong opinions about what that means and like what can be in there. And so we say, no problem. We can do a customer yeah. agreement with you. You just have to pay the mm -hmm. higher price. And they go, totally, we are 100% expecting that. Yeah, yeah. But when I think about it, like we've definitely had people reach out, for example, that want us to sign like NDAs and stuff like that, which I barely understand how that's even relevant to the, the process of that's purchasing shocking. our tool. But yeah, you know, yeah, they want you to sign an idea about what? Like the fact that they bought it? I don't know. You know, they just crazy. want us to yeah. sign some things, you know? Exactly. Yes. Yeah, that's the general advice. Don't sign things yeah. without a big price tag. Yeah. If the customer is making you sign something, you are handing them an invoice that has a big number. It's at least $10,000. Yeah. Like that's, don't even think about less than that, really. I guess we've we probably signed a couple things for a little bit less, but not, not often, yeah. not anymore. So, yeah. yeah. It's not worth it in the long term. Like you now need to like keep a database of all these agreements you've signed and make sure you're like adhering to the terms. Like, oh yeah, that's the thing that makes me terrified. Like, sure, fuck it. I guess like I agree to this term that I'm not gonna like think about ever again. And <laughs> you know, yeah, and yeah, now, totally. now so, constantly at risk of uh, breaking in some way. Yeah, but, make it worth it. Yeah, make it worth keeping track of that. Um, more little things. Put an expiration date on your quotes. Okay. This is a nice way to kind of push a deal forward. Like if you send someone, hey, you can buy this many seats at this price, put an expiration date on it so they don't just sit on it forever. Mm -hmm. uh, it kind of like helps move things along a little bit. What timeline are you putting on that sort of thing generally? Usually a couple weeks. Yeah. Something like that. Depends on kind of your read of the person, like how close this thing is to happening. They might need a bit more time. And again, you're kind of creating work for yourself with this so it's like oh if the deal does close and you've sent them an expired quote and they want a new one and you're not going to actually change it it's like eh was this worth it but I think there's something it's worth testing mm -hmm. a nice dodge for when people ask for discounts is to offer them quarterly payments instead interesting like if they're like oh 100 grand is a lot could we do 80 they say well I can't uh, not really but what if we did what if I what if I just split the payments into into four would that work for you is it a little bit better from a cash flow perspective and then like is, is that a deal breaker yeah. <laughs> nice. That's good. 
Yeah. So payment plans basically effectively. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> totally. Of a, yeah. Yeah. Assuming you don't care. I mean, maybe you, maybe that's not worth it for you. Yeah. I mean, like, I think you could probably make the argument that depending on where you're at in your business, like 80 grand today actually is better than having totally. 25 grand today and getting all hundred over the course of the year. Like Jason Cohen yes. would probably say, take the 80 grand. Yeah, he probably would. Yeah. Um, but it's a good thing to have in your back pocket. Like if you, if you're not bothered about the cash flow, then yeah, it's just a nice option. Yep. And, and in general, if you are going to discount something, it's normal to ask for something in return. Okay. Like when these negotiations happen, it's like a very strong built-in human response of like uh, reciprocation. Mm-hmm. And so if they're like, hey, can we get it for 80? And you can go, you know, I think I could probably do 85 if you agree to do a case study with us that mm-hmm. we can publish on our website about yeah. and like use your logo. I have been on the other end of this and have agreed to do the case study. <laughs> uh, <laughs> nice. Um, yeah. Yep. I can say that that works. Yeah. yeah, totally. Yeah, it, it, so it's like sometimes it makes sense to give the discount or like the budge a bit, um, but it's very normal to like ask for something. And like that could be like whatever you want. Case studies could make sense. Logo use can make sense. Give a talk at their user conference, you know, give a talk to the company itself, like do some sort of hackathon. I don't know, like what, whatever is useful for you and your, your company and your product. Mm-hmm. I like it. I like it. And then my last bit of pricing advice is to make sure you lose some deals due to price. Yeah. I could see why people would not think about that. But when you say it, it's kind of clear why you would yeah. want that to be <laughs> the case. Yeah. This is way easier said than done because you don't actually want to lose the deal, right? Yeah. So it's like kind of tough. And you have to really like kind of fully walk away. Yeah. So like there'll be this thing where the procurement person goes, well, can we do 80? And you go, sorry, no, like I, I we can't. We got to do 100. And they go, okay, well... Uh, that might not work then you go okay yeah. and then you have to let that time go by yeah and let them like come back to you and like i we've literally had this happen where they, they they come back like a week or two later and say you know we talked about it and like we we found some more room in the budget so like sometimes these deals will like un undie mm-hmm. but you really like need to have occasionally some deals just fall apart and in that case right like you you still haven't met your initial criteria now because totally like, because you haven't proven that you're that you're at the pricing threshold yet. You know what I mean? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And sometimes people will, like, if you have a really good relationship with someone, sometimes they'll tell you. Like, they'll just be like, listen, I mean, they'll be like, listen, like, there's just, like, no way that this deal gets done at this price point. Yeah. Like, this would be more expensive than any of our other whatevers. But then again, like, people lie. Yeah. You know, it's like, it's sometimes that's true and sometimes it's not exactly true. Yeah. And there's, like, this, like, power or this, um, there's this experience imbalance that's happening which is that you are like a founder and you're closing your like first or 10th deal. And you're usually negotiating against a procurement person who does this all day long. Mm-hmm. And they have a bunch of like verbal tricks or claims or, you know, power moves that they know that just like gets the price they want. So it's, you're in a tough, you're negotiating against someone that knows more than you. And so it's, it's hard. Like you, I'm guessing a lot of these people are probably like, rewarded based on like the discounts that they're able to get from yes that's i've heard that a million times i don't actually i haven't heard anyone tell me that but i i'm led to believe that is true you'd have to imagine it is like that seems like what you'd want to be doing as a business owner with your procurement team is incentivizing them to actually care about getting the best deal yeah and this brings me to dealing with procurement so a thing to know about procurement is that Generally, they want to get the deal done. Mm-hmm. Procurement doesn't really have a lot of clout in the company. They are just there to buy stuff. And so if like the VP of engineering says, go buy Tuple, they kind of have to buy Tuple. And they can't go back to that VP and be like, yeah, they wouldn't give us the discount we asked for. Mm-hmm. So I killed the deal. <laughs> They're like, I'm sorry, you did what? I told you to buy this. Like you like procurement works sort of works for the rest of the company. Yeah. They're not that that powerful. Yeah. And so like they will act like, listen, unless we get this for 80K, there's no way this is happening. And that's, you know, it's eh, not always so true. So what is the real world scenario where they will like not buy because of a price? Like what has to happen? Do they have to go get approval from someone who says no? And then that person yeah. is the person who would talk to the CTO and be like, listen, like, 
they're trying to yes. do this. Like they came to me for it. Like I'm the CFO or whatever. And like, this yes. is insane. Like, you know, sometimes there really is a budget set by someone who's not them and they can't fit your thing mm-hmm. in it or like it would just drain too much of it. Sometimes there really is a amount above which they need approval from somebody and that person just says no and that's it. Um, sometimes companies like companies that are not tech companies, I think are more likely to be in that situation. Like generally tech companies are deferring to engineering's needs. So you sort of have to read the situation of like, what kind of company is this? Who has the power here? How much do they want the thing we have? And that will sort of determine your negotiation leverage. Uh, and there may be times like, yeah, procurement actually just has a lot of clout in this company because the CFO is demanded that we reduce all expenses by 30% this year. And so they literally just can't do this thing. And you're going to have to deal like play ball. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of what makes a good salesperson, I think, is they like figure out what's involved in this decision what do people want? What are their constraints? Like, what can actually happen here? Because all of these deals are basically bespoke. Yeah. And so, like, you have to kind of feel your way through it. How much of a factor do you think it is for you guys when dealing with enterprise sales that, like, just talking about this procurement stuff has me thinking that I'm, I'm betting a major function of procurement is sort of like getting the best deal on similar products from multiple competing vendors. You know, like we need to get new chairs for the office and we could get them from this supplier, this supplier, or this supplier, you know, so there's like competition involved, Mm. but with something Mm -hmm. like tuple, like that element isn't really there. Like, yes, they might consider buying a somewhat similar product to tuple, but at the end of the day, like tuple is the only tuple, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do you think that plays into like how you negotiate with procurement or I guess in my head, I'm thinking, does it sort of like, does it remind yourself that sort of like give you more leverage, you know, then, then they're sort of treating you like you have maybe. I think so. Yeah. Because of like who we sell to and how it works. It's kind of like the decision has more or less been made. Mm -hmm. And so like procurement is kind of there to get the deal done for that department and like not get screwed on pricing and try to extract some concessions from you and get a good contract and all that. But usually it's kind of like, we want to buy tuple, buy tuple for us. That's a byproduct of like us. And so you may find that your thing is a different situation. Oh, you're selling to a department that has less clout or, and our budgets are really tight this year in this particular company that cares a ton about price, that sort of thing. Those all affect the deal. Yeah. But if you're selling software, it's probably not uncommon, right? I, I could imagine you could be in a software category where there are like very direct competitors. Like, well, we're negotiating with both like Drip and ConvertKit to get like the best deal or whatever. You know, I, I yeah. could see something like that happening. But yeah, we haven't, we, I have not personally bumped into that very much. Yeah. Generally, we are not in like a competitive kind of thing with procurement. Often people will try a few different tools and decide what they want to use. But usually by the time we're talking to them, we have already been decided yeah, on. Gotcha. I can't think of a deal where they were like, we're considering you and X. What price can you offer us? And we didn't give them a yeah. good enough deal. And so we lost it. Mm-hmm. I don't think that ever happened. One question I did have for you um, that maybe we should have talked about at the very beginning because I think it's helpful for like setting the context. But like, how important is enterprise sales to Tuple as a company? You know what I mean? Like, I I don't know, like, how you want to quantify it in a way that makes sense to people, but, like, how important is it to the business, you know, for the business to be, like, where it is right now? It's important. Um, By revenue, it's probably, like, a quarter of a business. So, you know, it's, it's like, survivable without it. It's, like, totally a fine business without that in terms of revenue. Um, In terms of usage, it is a larger percentage. So we have a number of customers that are on, like, bigger unlimited plans, and have maybe thousands of developers. And what we found is that a lot of developers from these companies will eventually leave and go start somewhere else and then bring the tool with them. Mm-hmm. And so there's, there's this like diaspora of people who were at company X and now are some, at a new startup and they bring the tool. And so we sometimes are not even optimizing for price. You're optimizing for like infection rate. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Monetarily, it is a not huge part of the business. In terms of overall success, I think it's a reasonably large percent of the business. Um, I wouldn't want to lose those those companies. How do you think about um, like a, a thing that Thirty Seven Signals has always said in the past is like they they don't want to charge enterprise customers a lot of money because they don't want them to make up a disproportionate size of their 
revenue and feel sort of like beholden to them because the business sort of depends on them. Is that, what do you think about that? And is that something that you take any sort of like active steps or, or actions toward, or has it just kind of worked out that if all the enterprise customers left, the business would still be fine. So, you know, whatever. Yeah. I, I, for us, it's kind of easier because yes, we are not dramatically dependent on any one of these customers and none of them represent any more than like, I don't know, 7% or something of our, or maybe 10% of our revenue. Yeah. Um, so it's like, there's no one who, if they left, we would be like, oh my God, we're not making payroll. Yeah. So that helps. It's like, it, it does make it trickier. Like it is kind of hard from a product design perspective to deal with the fact that like some people are on a team, like a, some customers have two users and some customers have 4,000 users. Yeah. Like that's a different, pretty different product or like it, it probably should be more shaped more mm-hmm. differently for these different teams. But like we are sort of like just try to like get one design that works for both. And it's kind of like not optimized for either. And so one thing that we could probably do a better job of that you might want to do uh, yourself as a founder is to decide earlier on that you're going to pick a type of customer. So we're trying to serve very different sizes. It might be better if we just said like, we're going to we're for teams that are of up to this size and we're just going to hyper-optimize for that. That would probably lead to a simpler life in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. And so you might just say like, hey, look, I'm getting a lot of interest from enterprise customers. Let's just do this. Let's make this our thing. Like, let's assume we're going to hire a big sales team and let's have like no credit card signups and we're always going to charge by invoice and it's just going to be like a huge minimum price. Yeah. Um, or you could say we're like you have, you just like, we just don't do that. We make plenty of money with credit cards. If you are annoying, like if you ask me if you can not use a credit card, I'm going to say no. <laughs> and like you sleep fine at night. I imagine yeah. about this. Uh-huh. How would you decide that at your company? Like if you had to choose one or the other, like it's easy for me to look at the outside and say, okay, well, Ben says enterprise makes up 25%. Of revenue, so obviously you'd rather keep the seventy-five percent than the twenty-five percent. Again, that's from the outside, but as someone who's actually working in there behind the scenes, like, is there more uh, more to it than that? You know, like, how do you think about that question? Like, should we like limit? Should we pick a pick a size? You're saying? Well, if you had to pick one or the other, if you had to pick, we're going to build tuple for big ass teams, so we're going to build tuple for companies with twenty or fewer engineers or something. And I guess like the context of this question is like, imagine you're someone starting a new thing who's maybe historically sort of just always heard this gospel of like, no, you just want to sell to people who can pay with credit cards and be able to do self-serve and you want to avoid the strippers and stakes, you know, like that come with like the enterprise deal situation. Is, Is there a world where you might convince someone that like we are sleeping on enterprise customers you know i i think that's kind of one of the things i expected to come into this conversation and become convinced of put it that way yeah even though we've done well with this and like we like are doing you know seven figures of revenue in enterprise sales deals we probably are sleeping on it like i'm excited to have this new head of sales starting who knows what he's doing yeah because i've just kind of like you know bungled my way through this and like you know learned stuff the hard way mostly and kind of just like yeah done our own thing so it, it could be that like this side of the business i suspect this side of the business has a lot more potential that we've gotten from it and in particular like we've done like no outbound at all it could be that like offering free tuple to various engineering leaders at the company leads to really good things it could be that like direct outreach of like hey we have a 10 person team at this big company that has a thousand developers like why are we not trying to turn that into 100 people by like contacting other engineering folks in that organization asking if they want to join the team that kind of thing there's probably a lot there that we are missing out on. So it could be that when I say like enterprise is not a huge part of the business, that's that's due to my own failures, basically. Yeah. Um, but you sort of ask like kind of like, how would you think about picking it? I do feel like a lot of business is sort of deciding what you want mm-hmm. because there's so many different ways to build a business that will work. You can totally big, make a great business on like a freemium thing that you sell per person. You can totally make a great business on like big ticket enterprise things. Obviously, there's like a consideration of like who wants it how do they expect to buy it? What makes sense given the market? But you could probably just kind of pick, like, what do you what do you want to do? Like for us, we weren't that excited about doing enterprise sales deals. Like we, yeah, we, we pushed back on it for a long time. And so I think 
we really stayed heavily on like our core customers, someone that could just sign up and get going. And as the business is maturing now, and I don't have to individually do this thing, now I can say like, oh yeah, we're also open to this now. And, like, and now we're going to go more aggressively after this, this segment because we can put somebody full time on it and pay them commission and salary and all that. Yeah. Yeah. It makes sense. So it might change as your company matures. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like when you look at like the biggest companies in the world, like they all just sell to each other and to enterprises, you know, like HubSpot is obviously like, well, I don't know. I could be wrong from the outside. I just assume that they're biggest customers are like the world's biggest companies you know probably probably and same with like probably stripe in a lot of ways like their big customers are enterprise customers you know like lyft is going to be an enterprise customer you know even though For sure. on the surface they're like a cool startup with a pink logo you know they're <laughs> mm-hmm. they're yeah. probably not differentiable from salesforce on the inside you know there, yeah, there's this thing that you see as SaaS companies mature, which is they almost always move up market. It's pretty rare for them to move down market, mm-hmm. right? They, they instead, like, they move their prices up. They start targeting larger teams. And I think that's because that's where a lot of the money is. Again, like, 100 grand a year is not a lot of money. In the big company world, a million dollars a year is not that much money. And yeah. so if you're trying to make, like, $50 million a year, doing it through 50 customers is probably a lot easier than, like, 2,000 or 20,000 customers. Sure. By a lot, probably. So uh, I, I think there's a pretty natural gravity that pulls these companies up market, and we're feeling it a bit ourselves, I think. And so it might make sense to just start there. Yeah. And don't be too intimidated by the, the legal documents and whatnot. Is there anything that you have like conceded and done for customers that you think would be interesting to talk about or, or things that people would just like never think to do? Like, a common one is like, oh, we need you to, you know, change how this feature works for us. And, you know, I, I remember working in like the oil sands in Alberta and the companies that we worked with to get software from, like, it felt like they sold only to like huge enterprises like us. And every installation of the software was like a bespoke copy, you know, that was mm, like yeah. tuned and customized yeah. directly for them. Yeah, hmm. nothing is exactly coming to mind. We have added some features that larger customers have asked for to help get the deal done. For what it's worth, you can off, it often seems that you can say, we don't have that right now, but we can totally put it on our, on a roadmap. Yeah. Hopefully that, that like won't block this thing from getting closed. Is that a deal breaker? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That has generally worked. And then we, you, know, we do the th- you should do the thing. You shouldn't lie about it. Um, but often it's kind of like, oh, lock this down a bit. Like, we have like some like very security sensitive customers where it's like, oh, you can't add new users to this team um, or you can't do any calls with someone outside your team or things like that. They generally are asking to kind of like lock it down. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Gotcha. We should maybe do a follow-up of like enterprise features at some point because I'm trying to figure out now like what do we build to make our enterprise tier more enticing so this like head of sales has a thing to go sell to people. Yeah. Like go take our customers on a normal plan and say, hey, do you want to upgrade to this because you get XYZ? So we're working on what that means or what yeah. those are. Um, maybe go a little rapid fire through some of these because I have I have some more departments okay, I want to talk yeah, to you yeah, about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, so let's finish procurement first. So a couple of quick tricks on procurement. One, ask what will make them love you. Like just be like, what what helps this deal get done faster, or like what what will make people at your company like really excited if we like agree to it. Like often there's like things culturally they care about a lot. And what are some of the answers that they've given to that question? Um, it's often like price point where it's like, okay, anything over 250 K has to be approved by the board. Okay. You're like, okay, that's, that, that's good to know. That's, that's worth considering. Yeah. Um, is it true? Hopefully, maybe. <laughs> um, I've had good results. There's a, there's a trick you can pull as a founder. I think that maybe doesn't work if you're not a founder where it, well, I would just say like, I'm new to this. I'm actually a developer. I haven't really done many of these deals. I would just like love your advice on like how to do this thing. Well, like what would make this work well? And they'll often say, well, we, like, we really like to do per user pricing or like we really like unlimited pricing or we really like people, it's all about the discount. Like we want to see a discount of at least X percent. And so like I've, I've gotten some like really great honest feedback from procurement folks by just like honestly telling them like, I don't really know what I'm doing here. I'm basically a developer. Can you help me? Mm-hmm. And got, I'm like, that's been great. Nice. Um, that thing about like, yeah, it's worth asking like, are there price points that re- like require executive level sign off here? Um, hopefully they tell you the truth on that. It can be kind of useful to, to like a move I've done like once or twice. It's just like to threaten to walk away if they're going too slowly. 
just okay. kind of like, hey, it seems like you're like maybe now is not the time for this. So like, feel free to like reach out back to me like when you're if you're like ready to move on this. A lot of the times that like gets them to like, oh no no, we're we're good. We we do still want to do this. Like, let me like get you the thing. Um, and yeah, just generally, if you don't get a hard no from them, you don't really know where the limits are. Yeah. So it's worth like bumping into some hard no's. Uh, next department is IT or like security. Yep. For example, this is a very common pain point for selling software to companies is that they, they want to send you a bespoke security questionnaire, which will have like 200 of the dumbest questions you've ever been asked, <laughs> which is like, how long does the data center where you store your data retain the security surveillance footage of the <laughs> servers? Is it 90 days? Is it 120 days? And you're like, are you what? <laughs> And that's like one question of like often hundreds. Yeah, I have had really good luck pushing back on these things. And in particular, the thing we did was we said, look, we are a small startup. And so we wrote up all of our security details at tuple.app slash security. And you can go look at this page. This page has saved us so much time. It has like networking diagrams. It has questions about encryption schemes, um, privacy stuff. And what we would say is like they like they would send us a thing of like oh I'm like so I'm really sorry like we're we're a small team I can't really fill out a, a bespoke questionnaire right now, but if you look at tuple.app/security and you have any additional questions I'm totally happy to update that page. And it's shocking like maybe fifty percent of the time sixty percent of the time they would just go oh that seems fine like I sent it to security they're they're happy they, they thought it was funny. good. I love the uh, not I wouldn't be willing to answer your question but I would be willing to update the page. Yes, I think that's the key way to do it. Because yeah. like what, the, what typically you find is like all those questions are boilerplate. They're just doing it for their like whatever certification or they're like they, just, they need to check a box, which is like we performed the audit of the security of all the tools. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you can just get the security department to kind of look at it and go, yeah, this seems good. So like, again, like you don't know where the limits are if you don't say no to things. Yeah. And this is the thing I, st- I said no to and found like a lot of the time the limit is not really there. Yeah, nice. It works, it works really well. And then you have this great resource that shows you're like, it's kind of like about showing your your sort of serious, yeah. Where it's like you're a small startup, you're not SOC two certified. They'll ask about that. We're not. We've closed millions of dollars of enterprise deals without being SOC two certified. Totally fine. But you do want to show like, hey, we take this thing seriously. Yeah. And a security page with a lot of detail totally helps. And like when we get a new question that we haven't seen before, we add it to the page. Like we have an FAQ. We like fill stuff out. If things are unclear, we update that page. Like it's, it is a living document. Mm-hmm. Um, and it shows like we know what's up and we're taking this seriously. Nice. And that's usually what the security department actually wants to know. Yeah. Yep. That's great. Um, and then, yeah, if they ask for certain things that like sort of saying like, uh, well, we don't have that now, but we can probably put that on the roadmap. That often gets sort of uh, things moving along. Um, and if they have difficult requirements where like, oh, you need to have this like complicated security requirement, like every laptop must be tracked by some asset protection software or something. There is a process, it seems like, in all of these security orgs, where there's like a process for getting an exception. And so you can say like, ah, sorry, we can't really do that. Can you like, do you have like some sort of exception process? And they go, okay, sure, yeah, fill out this this one pager and we'll just like document that like we said, it's okay that you don't do this. Nice. All right, legal. Oh, okay. They're the best. They're the best. Okay, so procurement wants to get the deal done. Legal cares way less. <laughs> Legal is there to worry about the worst case scenario and to protect the company from liability. And if they're not happy with your agreement, they will pretty happily kill the deal. Yeah. Not not all the time. You know, if like someone important wants it done, they can push back. But legal has much more clout than procurement does. It's harder to get legal to compromise on things. And it's way more likely that a legal objection is going to like actually botch the deal. So that's important context. Um, I recommend using Y Combinator's SaaS agreement. They publish this for free. Um, it is a nice, fairly f- like balanced agreement, which is just like, okay, we need a thing to sign that says we're buying the software. Often, like the procurement or legal ask, like, do you have like, do you want to use our paper? Or do you want to use yours? And so it can be convenient to just say, let's use let's use this one. You can use Y Combinator's SaaS agreement. Very good. It'll probably be easier to use their paper. They call it like so. Like they send you their agreement, and you push back on any sort of things you can't agree to versus if you send them your agreement, a lot of the times you're going to come back with like 50 red lines that you now need to like, they're just going to like tear it up. They're going to shred it. And now you are like using Microsoft word 
with like tracks <laughs> changes to like debate in the comments what yeah, things yeah. are fair and not and trying to come up with, you know, version five underscore final. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so your life will probably be easier if you start with their paper and only push back on things that you really cannot agree to. Okay. Okay. That's good. Cause I think uh, in some ways that's maybe counterintuitive until you think about the details, you know? Totally. Um, yeah. I recommend adding a few things to all your agreements. One is an auto renew. Like if no one does anything, you renew at the same terms. Okay, another year happens unless you tell us 30 days out or something. That's You want okay. that in there. Um, auto price increase is a good thing to try to put in there. A lot of people will push back. You might not get that in there, but it's worth putting in there. Like price automatically renews at 5% of increase or something. Um, it's worth putting in, we want to use your logo in our marketing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's worth putting in, we want to do a case study with your editorial approval. So we want to be able to talk about it, but you're going to get to have final veto before we publish anything. And nice. all four of those are worth trying. They might cut them, but... A lot of the times they don't. And if they cut all of them, probably still fine. Uh, it's, exactly. It's still fine. And generally, if they cut all of them, they might be willing to compromise on something else because of that sure. reciprocity thing. We're like, well, we can't do these, but, you know, yeah. something, something. Mm-hmm. All right. And now this part has huge caveat on it. And I'm just going to be clear. Like, I'm not a lawyer, and this is not legal advice, and you'd be stupid to follow it. But I'm going to whisper this, which is just that you probably won't get sued. Like, the way you enforce a contract is in court. So like the way you get in trouble is like someone sues you and takes you to court. And generally that doesn't happen that much. Yeah. So if you are a tiny startup and you're trying to get off the ground and they say you need $250,000 of liability insurance and you have $200,000 of liability insurance or whatever, like they would have to like sue you for breach of contract and like have their lawyers take you to court and yada, yada, yada. And We've never been sued. I don't know any other entrepreneur that's been sued. This just doesn't seem to happen that much. So I don't think you should sign a document and like that says you're going to do a thing and not do it. But like, there's maybe a little tiny bit of wiggle room for like getting your startup off the ground, where it's like, yeah, do we have like a annual security awareness training? Yeah, it was a 15 minute thing that we did over Slack, where we like sent some links around. Like we technically accomplished the thing. Like, it, sure. There's yeah. Yeah. Again, like. Don't follow this advice. This is terrible advice. I don't think you should do it. I certainly would never do it. It's not a legal advice. But the reality is, like, there's not that much suing going on, it seems to me, on the ground. So yeah. just keep that I in think mind. that's the case with a lot of a lot of the things that people can be like scared away from starting something with. Yeah. Right. It's the same with like charging tax in Europe or something. You know? Totally. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you have to do it. But, but like if you talk to a hundred founders, you kind of also can't do it and still get the company to the point where you can do it. You know what yeah, I mean? Like, exactly. <laughs> like, are you a hundred percent paying VAT correctly? Are you sure? Are you yeah. paying state sales tax in every state in the United States correctly? Are you sure? You're probably not quite, but it's yeah. like, it feels a little bit like in business, there's a little bit of leeway where it's like, we're, we're going to eventually do the right thing. Like we're going to get. We're going to get going. We're going to pay the back taxes. We're going to add that insurance after the fact. We're going to do the security training later. Like you can mm-hmm. kind of you can kind of catch up a little bit. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. and officially I deny ever saying any of this. And if you follow this and get in trouble, that is 100% on you. No. I would never do this. I w- I would never do this, but I wouldn't fault somebody else for doing it. I of course <laughs> would never do it though. That's right. Yes. <laughs> and behind closed doors or at a conference talking to other founders, you might find that some of those incredibly irresponsible people people have done this. Yes. But you certainly won't. And neither Adam nor I have. Mhm. Um yeah. So that's legal. I'm excited to come back at some point and talk about hiring your replacement because I think the point of closing all these deals, unless you love it, is make enough money that you can hire someone to, to take this off your plate and get back to writing code or designing or yeah. being on the beach. Um, and we are rapidly approaching a time where I will have some actual real-world experience on that. So yes. perhaps we'll do a round two, maybe with our, our head of sales, and say, like, what have you done as you've professionalized this mess that Ben has made? Yeah. I think just the general topic of paying people to do things that you don't like doing and therefore assume nobody likes doing. But in reality, many people really get a lot of satisfaction out of and are very good at and are good for your business is a very interesting discussion. Mm-hmm. Totally. So. Cool. Well, that's, this was good. That's that. 
Sweet. You got me. You got me intrigued. Maybe Ooh. maybe we'll sell a twenty thousand dollar HTML template to NASA now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And get ready for get ready for a world of pain. <laughs> the, the, the process where you like actually get paid, like submit your invoice to their custom portal. Like you have to create oh, an man. account on their system and upload a thing, and they'll reject it because it doesn't have the right address on it. And like the German people will be mad because it doesn't have like this particular phrase on it. Like it's a whole world of madness. Yeah, I'm excited to hear what Peter, who edits our podcast and who also knows that if we ever did this would land on his plate <laughs> has to say or after he yeah, doesn't edit it sorry but does the show notes after what he has to say to me after listening to this one yeah yeah um, so the bad news is that all of those things are there the good news is there's also buckets of money so if you if you want the buckets of money it might be worth it yep 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 yeah, interesting cool. cool well i hope this good is one. helpful yeah. yeah all right man take it easy you too bye